your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. We are continuing our series, Unfinished Church on Purpose. And uh, just to give you kind of a little bit of a heads up, we're going to be cruising through Acts uh, throughout the rest of this month, and then we might be taking a break in September, and then we'll pick it up at a later time. And uh, I'm seeing them have a little bit of sound issues, but hopefully that'll get worked out. Uh, this will be a unique um, week for us in the life of the church. Um, I will be out of pocket to be taking my daughter down to, uh, to Texas where she's starting uh, college. You could uh, appreciate your prayers for that. And uh, obviously, uh, Pastor Dell and Leanna will not be, uh, Pastor Dell won't be in the office either. So praise the Lord. I'm glad Jesse said what he said about elders. We have a great elder team that are always out ministering and caring. Uh, Dave Harrington, Tom Brenner. Uh, Jeff Brask, Jesse Soto, and um, John McCauley. How could I forget, John? We love you, brother. John teaches a lot of our Bible studies here. Thank you. I just wanted to test you. I was just testing you guys, see if you know who our elders are. There you go. There you go. Um, you know, that's actually a little bit about what our passage is about today. Uh, and I, I wanted to uh, bring back this analogy of the pitcher. Uh, this morning. I know uh, Pastor Dell, if you were with us last week, had a picture. His was clear and you could see that it was empty. But this morning's question to us is, what are we full of? Uh, <laughs> what are you full of? Now, there's a four-letter S word that a lot of people think about, and I'm actually going to challenge that today, and I'm about to have you all say it. Okay, what are we full of? Well, hopefully we're not full of self. I wasn't thinking of the other one. All right. <laughs> but we're hopefully we're full of the Spirit. And a church that is full of the Spirit is going is to develop leaders to spread and reach out with the Word of God. And so this morning, I want to ask you a question, and then we're going to keep asking it, is what are you full of? Um, and hopefully it's not any of the four-letter S words, but uh, it's full of uh, the Holy Spirit. I'm going to ask you to stand one more time as we read God's Word, and then I will pray uh, briefly, and then we will dive into this. I'll be uh, using the uh, New International Version, and I know uh, those of you who like to follow along with notes, uh, LG, the, the lgc.com slash bulletin, you could always look at that as well. But let's read God's Word. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Father, we ask that you would add your blessing to the word as your word goes forth today. I pray that it would accomplish its purposes in Jesus' name. 
And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Well, someone once said, if you ever find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll spoil it. <laughs> we used to tell new members class, I promise that if you join this church, we will at some point offend you. Or I like as someone else put it, to dwell above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints we know, well, that's a different story. <laughs> This is, um, Acts chapter 6 introduces one of the growing pains, problems within the church. And if you've been reading the book of Acts, you'll notice that there's a pattern, that Luke has a pattern, and he starts off with talking about the church alone, and then the church in the world. Church alone, church in the world. See you later. Um, That's uh, one way to shorten my sermon. Uh, Church alone, church in the world. And the idea there is Acts 1 You know, the idea is they were waiting on the Holy Spirit. They had to choose a new apostle to take Judas's spot. Um, And they were praying to God and and, and all these things. In Acts chapter 2, boom, the Pentecost came and they went out and they preached the gospel and 2,000 people got saved. And then at the end of chapter 2, he talks about how the church was, uh, was growing and they were fellowshipping together and breaking bread and devoted to the teaching. And then Acts 3 again, boom, uh, Peter's out there healing people. And, uh, and, and then he gets arrested for healing and gets called in. And he says, you know, uh, I, I did this in the name of Jesus Christ. It's, and he's the one you crucified. And they said, well, you just need to stop preaching in his name. And then Acts chapter 4, the church, he, he continues preaching. And the church is praying and praying. And they get together and they pray. And at the end of chapter 4, it talks about how they sold their possessions to anyone in need, and they were sharing one another. So again, it's the church alone. And then the beginning of Acts 5, there's um, the, uh, the hypocrisy of, one of, the, of Ananias and Sapphira. And then, bam, Acts chapter 5, they're back out in the world preaching. And what happens? The Sanhedrin arrest them, put them in jail. And then they get a, they get a, they, uh, in chapter 5, they get miraculously delivered uh, by an angel. And then they go before the court, and one of the... One of the key people in the court, Gamaliel, who says, you know, if this movement is not of God, then leave it alone. It'll, it'll, it'll die. But if it's of God, you can't stop it. And so they said, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. But they kept doing it. <laughs> well, here we are at, at chapter 6, and we've got the, the first internal problem. Uh, I would say the second after an Ananias and Sapphira. And uh, this is a problem that kind of arises up. But uh, before we get to that, I just want to note that the church is growing. It went from about like uh, 72 to, to 2,000, and then it doubled to four or 5,000, and most commentators and scholars think by the time Act, Act 6 comes around, it's about 10,000 people that have come to faith in Jesus Christ in the Jerusalem area. And, uh, and they are just, uh, you know, they're exploding. And you have to ask the question, why do they keep growing? And one of the themes in the, in the book of Acts is, is they kept spreading the gospel. They kept preaching the gospel. It was all about Jesus and not about me. And that's really kind of one of the main focuses today as we look at this passage. I want you to see that uh, a healthy, growing church, it's about being full of the Spirit. It's not about caring about myself only and what I care about. Uh, Our big idea today is going to be gospel-driven churches. Another word for that is missional Churches that are committed to preaching and sharing the gospel, they're not just there for themselves. I think it was Chuck Colson who said that famous quote, that church is the only institution in, in the world that exists primarily for its non-members. 
Think about that for a second. I know I quote that usually every other time, but it's, uh, it's, it's so true. The church is the only institution that exists primarily for its non-members. And in the, in, the, in, the, in the book of Acts, that's what they're doing. They're preaching the gospel. So gospel-driven churches, though, they, what they need to do is they need to develop spirit-filled leaders who submit to the word of God. That's our big idea this morning. If we're going to be a gospel-driven church, we can't just be about, you know, Pastor Dell and I leading the flock here, or even the elders leading it. We have to be developing spirit-filled leaders who prioritize and submit to the word of God. And I also put this down, to solve problems in the local church, both leaders and people must be godly people who submit to God's word. All right. All right. Let's look at the text. Verse one again. It says, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. All right. Now, what's going on here? Uh, the word Helen or Hellenist, which means Jews with Greek cultural roots. The phrase Hellas is a geographic region of Greece. Not everybody who got saved at Pentecost was from Jerusalem and were Jewish uh, people of, the, of, of Jewish descent, okay? There was lots of different people from different countries and different areas that were there on that day. They were all there for the feast. And, and so, you know, one of the themes in the, in, the, in the book of Acts is that the gospel is not just for one group of people. You know, sometimes we think, oh, you know, church is for church people, for religious people, you know. In reality, the church exists to reach the masses, and the beginning of this chapter is going to show you that they're going to be going from an apostle-led church, the apostles, to now you're going to see ordinary lay people like Stephen and Philip are going to actually be the ones through which they spread the gospel. And through Stephen is going to come Saul, who becomes Paul. So that's really important because, you know, the people who are going to reach the world for Christ are usually not your staff because we're not where you are. We're not with you at work. You are the best person to reach the people in your school, the people in your job, the people in your neighborhood. And that's so important because, you know, often we think it's all about the leaders and the leaders. Our job is to equip you to do that, okay? So the problem was, prob was probably not deliberate. The Hellenistic Jews felt like their widows were being slighted, while the Hebrew widows were getting more than their fair share in the daily distribution of food, Okay. I mentioned that the Hellenistic Jews came from mostly outside of Palestine, and they spoke a different language. So most of them probably spoke Greek, which was largely influenced by the Greek culture. The Hebrew were Jews who spoke Aramaic, and they grew up in the Jewish culture, mostly in Palestine. So already here, there's kind of an, a, a, a racial issue going on here. And uh, what I put down for our first, um, our first point today is that gospel-driven churches face growing pains from within the church. If we ever start growing, which I think we are already, we're going to face uh, problems, okay? Uh, somebody once put it this way, um, you know, new believers, when you have new conversions, you have problems. Spiritual babies always dirty their spiritual diapers. <laughs> they wake you up in the middle of the night with their crying. Hopefully, uh, uh, Levi's not doing too much of that. Uh, but I'm talking about new spiritual babies. They, like all babies, spiritual babies are usually self-centered at first. Even mature believers are not exempt from self-centeredness struggles and sin every church especially every growing church will have problems so the existence of problems in a church is not does not mean that god is not working all right 
Now, this is a pretty dangerous problem because there is an edge to it. It's a racial problem. You're prioritizing this group over this one because of their cultural ethnicity. Okay. Now, just to um, fan the fires of racism this morning, I thought I would uh, share with you guys something that I came across this week. Um, uh, three good arguments that Jesus was Jewish. He went into his father's business. He lived at home until he was 33. He was sure his mother was a virgin, and his mother thought he was God. Have you heard this one before? Uh, I'm Italian. I don't know about you, but uh, I love Italians, and I love Italian food. Uh, a lot of people think Jesus was Italian, uh, and this is the argument. He talked with his hands. He had wine with every meal and used olive oil, and he worked in the building trades. All right? I see Don Bextel over there. Here's one for you, I think. Uh, there are three equally good arguments that Jesus was Irish. He never got married. He was always telling stories, and he loved green pastures. <laughs> Any Californians here? Uh, three equally good arguments that Jesus was a Californian. He never cut his hair. He walked around barefoot all the time, and he started a new religion. <laughs> uh, three arguments that he was black. He called everyone brother. He liked gospel, and he couldn't get a fair trial. <laughs> and uh, my lovely wife, three proofs that Jesus was Mexican. His first name was Jesus. He was bilingual. He was always being harassed by the authorities. And this is my favorite one. Three proofs that Jesus was a woman. He fed a crowd at a moment's notice when there was no food. <laughs> he kept trying to get a message across to a bunch of men who just didn't get it. And even when he was dead, he had to get up because there was more work to do. <laughs> Amen. All right, just a little bit of humor there. But, you know, race can sometimes uh, be like that. It can kind of challenge us, and it can cause problems. And you know what? Um, I'm glad that, the, that the, the apostles handled this well, okay? There are actually two problems with this complaint. They seem to assign motives. The text says that the Hellenists complained not against the, the apostles, but they claimed against the Hebrews. In other words, they may have assumed that the Hebrews were leaving them out for racial and cultural reasons. Second, they never brought this to the apostles until it says that a, a complaint arose which implies that there was general murmuring and backbiting. That word complaint, every time it's used in, the, in Old and New Testament, it's usually a sin. It's usually a, a sin. And, and so you don't know what was going on in small groups. You know, these churches were meeting in homes all across Jerusalem. You, don't, you know they don't care about us. You know, we're getting slighted. All this stuff was going on. And I just want to say something. You know, this is a significant threat. Nothing is used by Satan more effectively than distrust and resentment in the church. This is Satan's fourth major attack on the church. Uh, in chapter 4, he attacked it through a persecuting government. Chapter 5, he attacked it through an, the embezzling hypocrisy of one of its leaders, Ananias. In, Acts 5, in the end of Acts 5, he again, it's the Sanhedrin, are, are putting them in jail. And then in Acts 6, he attacks it through a spirit of grumbling, distrust, and backbiting. And I would say this might be the most serious threat that endangers churches. A spirit of grumbling and complaining can often kill a church more than persecution. Do you understand that when you speak evil of your brothers and sisters, and especially when you judge their motives, you can be being used by Satan? Write this verse down, Proverbs 26, 20 to 22. says this, Without wood... Proverbs 26, 20 to 22. Without wood, a fire goes out. Without a gossip, a quarrel dies down. As charcoal to embers and as wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome, 
quarrelsome person for kindling strife. The words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to the inmost parts. Let me give you just two general rules to handle. And one of them, the first one, you're going to say, oh, Tony, you're so naive. Okay. Um, but it, these are really good things. When, when stuff is going on and you got a problem with somebody or somebody sends you an email or a text, okay, always give people the benefit of the doubt about their motives when you can. Give people, the, that's what I try to do as a pastor. I get something, an email, I get a text. I try to give you the benefit of the doubt. Now, that's exactly the opposite of our culture. Our culture says, trust no one, okay? Uh, and that, and then when, we, when, we add it, when we function with an attitude of distrust, he's out to get me, she doesn't like me, that's what causes these, um, th these quarrels. So always give people the benefit of the doubt about their motives when you can. And number two, when you have a problem, always go straight to the source. Always go, no triangles, okay? No triangles. So if, 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 if I've done something to hurt you or, or, or you thought, you know, something happened, come to me, okay? Come to the person. Don't go to your small group leader or to somebody else and say, well, so-and-so is like this, so-and-so is like that. That's not the way to handle it, okay? So much disharmony we would avoid if we operated this way. Now, how did the church leadership respond? Defensively? No, they didn't, Okay. They had a sense of unity and community in the church. They had the best leaders imaginable in the 12 apostles, and they were growing in a way that can only be attributed to the power of the Holy Spirit. So what they did was they actually took it to the disciples. Look at verse 1. What is, what are, what are, um, I took it to the apostles, I should say. And the apostles immediately called a meeting and said, we need to address this. Now, I just want you to see what Christians, what followers of Jesus were called in the book of Acts, in all of the Gospels. It's in verse 1. Can somebody tell me what followers of Jesus were called? Look at verse 1. What are they called? This is why we encourage you to bring your Bible to church, to keep looking at it while we preach. Yeah. What? No, uh, in verse 1, what are they called? Disciples. Okay, that's interesting. They're not called Christians, they're not called converts, they're called disciples. The word disciple means learner. We're all learning. None of us have arrived, okay? It refers to those who are learning to follow Jesus as Lord. That is a lifelong process. I appreciate what Jesse said. You know, we're all, we're all on that continuum of growing, all right? Um, I share this with you because the, the word disciple occurs here for the first time in the book of Acts, all right? It is the most common designation in the Gospels for the followers of Jesus. 74 times in Matthew, 45 in Mark, 38 in Luke, 81 in John, 28 times in the book of Acts. That's 266 times. Jesus said that we are to do what? Make disciples. Yeah. A disciple is one who is following after Christ, who's a learner, who's growing. You can't follow someone you don't know you know i've often told you guys this before you're not gonna you're not gonna um you're not gonna obey somebody that you, you're that you're not committed to you're not gonna commit somebody you don't trust you're not gonna trust somebody you're not gonna i'm sorry you're not gonna commit yourself to somebody unless you love them you're not you can't love somebody unless you trust them at least you shouldn't and you can't know somebody you can't trust somebody unless you know them all right you're not going to obey somebody that you don't uh, that you're not committed to. You're not going to commit yourself to somebody you don't love. 
You're not going to love somebody you don't trust. You're not going to trust somebody you don't know. That's why our main idea today is we need to have spirit-filled, we need to develop spirit-filled leaders who prioritize the Word of God, okay? How do you get to know God? Through His Spirit and through His Word. So important, all right? So let's see what they do. Let's look at this. It says, verse 2, So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to the prayer and ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. Now, don't hear the apostles. I know when I first read this, I, I thought, wow, these apostles, who do they think they are? They're not saying this is beneath us, okay? That's not the gist here at all. In fact, the fact that they had to call on a team to do it when the load of widows got larger implies that the apostles were already doing it. The apostles thought of themselves as servants. They, they were followers of a man who washed their feet, okay? So for the first six chapters, they have been waiting on tables. They have been serving. But now they realize that the load is too heavy and would consume their time. And the greatest act of service they can provide the church is teaching the word accurately, seeking God in prayer on behalf of the church and training others to do the same. They're not graduating out of service. They're focusing on a more effective kind of service. All right. So uh, I said the first point today was missional churches or gospel-driven churches will face growing pains. Number two is... Gospel-driven churches need leaders who will prioritize prayer in the Word of God. It's so tempting. You know, the Bible says if the devil can't make... The Bible says... Uh, people say, uh, I've been taught that if the Bible... If the devil cannot make you bad, he will make you busy doing other stuff, distracted. And that's really important because us as leaders, the most important thing that we need to be focusing on is our relationship with God in prayer and in His Word. Proverbs 3, 4, and 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not under, on your own understanding. Acknowledge Him in all your ways and He will make your path straight. You can't do that without knowing God. And you can't know God without being in His Word. And so his disciples said, God's word permeates all, his apostles said, God's word permeates all of his thinking and doing, all of their thinking and doing. They didn't want to act with human or worldly wisdom, but in accordance with the wisdom revealed in scripture. Um, look at, I want you guys just to look at the passage real fast. Look how many times the word of God appears here. Verse two, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God. They reiterate this in 6.4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And then look at verse 7. The result was the word of God kept spreading. So the, the, the emphasis here is we are going to prioritize God's word. And that's what us, we as leaders need to be doing. Um, the requirement for these men who were to deal with the problem was that they be men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom. Okay, The whole problem-solving process was oriented to God through prayer and God's word. Um, this is, uh, this is significant. And I want to ask you this morning, is where, how is your relationship, how's your prayer life? How's my prayer life? Is it possible that I can get up here and, and do what I do without being in prayer with God? Uh, I was reading one of the books that I read on my sabbatical a year ago that challenged and convicted me was Letters to the Church by Francis Chan. 
And he said he would not hire a staff member who did not spend one hour with God every morning in prayer. He's like, you know what? You're going to be in full-time ministry and seeking God on behalf of people. You need to spend time with God in prayer. You know? And I, that challenged me. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not there yet. I'm not there all the time. But we need to be people of prayer. Not just the leaders, but everybody needs to be people of prayer. You know, we had a prayer meeting on Thursday night, and uh, we're taking a break from the corporate prayer meeting right now. But, uh, it, you know, it's interesting the people that come to prayer meeting at a church. I've found usually it's, it, it's usually people who have a severe need, and they're really in, in, in desperate need, or they really know what the mission of the church is, and they're committed to the mission of the church. Um, and it, it, if, if you don't know, if, if two of those things aren't happening in your life, then you're probably often not going to see the need to pray. There is a life group today that does pray. We have a life group now that is praying. If you'd like to be a part of that, let me know. Uh, we do meet regularly to pray for the needs of the church. And In the fall, we will have another church, all-church corporate prayer meeting. I encourage you to make that a priority. But it's not just corporate prayer, but individual prayer. I hope you're taking time to prioritize God's, uh, to God, prayer with God and the Word of God. Okay. Now, there's a myth out there, and, that, and this is the myth. That the prayer and the Word of God stuff, that's all spiritual stuff. That's what the staff does. But the people who serve and help the widows or who are helping, you know, set up tables and set up tents and are in the parking lot, well, those are just, you know, the, the, the people that are just, you know, they, they don't need to be committed to prayer and to the Word. And that's a terrible fallacy because what I want you to see in this passage is that they're saying, we're going to choose people to wait on tables to serve these widows, but these people that we're going to choose, these seven men that they come up choosing, they need to be full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. They need to be committed to the Word of God just as much as we are. Okay? Um, and here's what's going on here. There, you know, behind fallacies and myths, there's often another lie. And the lie is this, that all spiritual people... Uh, when you're spiritual or, or you're seeking prayer in God, you're just, you're like, it's, like, it's like you're heavenly minded, but no earthly good. And I want to I challenge that. Spiritual people are concerned for the total person. In other words, spirituality isn't limited to the soul, but also to the body. The problem arose in connection with distributing food to needy widows in the church. The Bible has a special concern for widows and orphans. Uh, mark this in your Bible, James 1.27. Remember what James said? Religion that our God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. In that culture, widows were often left destitute with no family, no means of support. The church tried to meet these needs. True spirituality is not impractical or otherworldly. Godly people care about physical and spiritual needs. They don't just dish out pious platitudes, but they offer real help to those in need. Uh, we have a family blessing fund that helps people. We have elders that meet with people that are going through difficulties to pray for them. We anoint people who are sick. We have a prayer ministry that's constantly praying for people who have physical and emotional and mental health and spiritual needs. I don't know if any of you know Amy Carmichael. She was a famous missionary to India. She once pointed out to some of the critics of her ministry because she was always ministering to the needy people and their physical needs. She said, souls are rather securely fastened to bodies. <laughs> you have to uh, do both. Um, uh, I, I had the privilege last night of waiting, uh, waiting up for my daughter to come home, my teenage daughter, 
And um, so uh, what did I do? I said, you know, I'm going to, uh, I need to, you know, just be encouraged. And I took out one of these uh, Voice of the Martyrs magazines. And uh, I just started reading a story. I read a story about a Buddhist monk who came to Christ and started, uh, started sharing Christ everywhere he went with people. It was amazing. Uh, I think it was in Ma Myanmar. And uh, I don't know if you've ever uh, read Voice of the Martyrs. I am actually, you know how I always put a book on the back table? Today I'm going to put a bunch of these magazines on the table. I want you to take one and actually read it. I'll be honest with you. I get, sometimes get these and I, it goes like weeks without being opened. Um, but whenever I read these, just even a, a couple stories, they're always encouraging. This Buddhist monk was sharing Christ with his wife and his wife said no, no, no and uh, almost wanted to disown him and his family. But he kept serving her and loving her. And it was the difference that his service and his attitude showed. It wasn't that he gave, gave a great sermon to her or explained to her why Jesus is the Messiah so much. It was that she, she saw Christ in him. And then he started going around and he started sharing Christ with people in his village. And at first, when she got saved, and they both started going that. They got beaten up. They got thrown rocks. They got their house totally messed with. And then they, they say he went to seminary. And the first thing he did out of seminary is he said, you know what? I'm going to go door to door and ask people if they have anything that I could help them with. And he went door to door and he started doing that. And over a couple years, he's built a church there and many churches. And, and, and the gospel is spreading in Myanmar. Uh, it, just fascinating stories from uh, Voice of the Martyrs. I hope you guys will, will check that out. But my point here is that when you're in prayer and you're in God's word, it's going to motivate you to care for the whole person. It's gonna, you're going to be very earthly minded in the sense that you're going to care about bringing the kingdom of heaven to other people into this world, all right? All right, let's keep moving on. Third point. Uh, uh, we said, number one, gospel-driven churches will encounter growing pains. They will have problems. Number two, gospel-driven churches um, need to have leaders who prioritize and submit to the Word of God. And then the last point is gospel-driven churches empower their people to lead as they are led by the Spirit, all right? Um, uh, you can see, brothers and sisters, he says, choose seven men from among you. So who's going to choose these seven people? It's the congregation that does it, okay? Um, let me give you just a few things. You know, it's interesting that the church didn't do what a lot of churches do here in America, split. Well, you got two different cultures. You got two different languages, you know? Uh, it's time we divide the church up into the first Hellenic, Hellenistic church of Jerusalem and the first Hebrew church of Jerusalem. They never considered division as an option, even though these two groups had diverse backgrounds, had different mother tongues, they wanted to work the problem out in a spirit of unity, not division, okay? So when you lead, gospel-driven churches are committed to unity expressed through diversity. Nothing screams of heaven more than a multicultural church. People are coming from different backgrounds, even different political backgrounds, even different family, racial backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, but they're all committed to Jesus Christ. Nothing screams. That's why Jesus' last prayer was what? I pray that the church would be united. John 17, that, that, they would, that my people, that the disciples in the church, they would be one so that the world would know that they sent. Because everything else in this world, they, everybody divides. Everybody's tribal. Everybody picks divisions. And Jesus knew that if we could be one, uh, that would change everything. It would be a witness to his power. How are we doing on the unity factor? All right. God wants to reach all segments of society so that from every walk of life, 
will gather in love and unity to sing His praises. We must consider, commit ourselves to work through our problems whenever it does not compromise essential truth. Okay? This wasn't an essential issue. Who's going to serve the widows? Okay? Let's make sure they get served, make sure that everybody gets equal, but um, they, they, they wasn't, uh, wasn't um, uh, one to divide over. All right, I, I mentioned earlier the congregation is to choose. A growing organism requires new levels of organization in order to solve problems. You know, the, the, the apostles didn't just say, well, we've never done this before. Oh, my gosh, what should we do? No, they said, okay, I want you to choose from among you Seven men. Now, the first thing, look at the text. It says, choose those who, uh, it says, choose, what does it say? Choose, brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known, who are known. I know some of you are new to this church and you come on Sundays and that's wonderful and we're so glad you're here, but we don't know you <laughs> and you don't know us. And the reality is, is that if you just are a Sunday Christian, you probably will not be known, and you probably will not know. And that's one of the greatest tragedies in life, is to be known and not loved, or to be loved and not known. And so I encourage you, one of the values of what Jesse said, you know, come to Serve Saturday, be involved in a life group. Uh, is Jeff and Mark here today? Jeff, are you here? Jeff Brass. Hey, Jeff, yeah. Want to stand for a second, Jeff? You never know when you're going to call the elder out. Okay, yeah. Yeah, Jeff. Jeff. Uh, thanks, Jeff. Jeff leads a, a men's discipleship group on Saturday mornings, okay? They're going to be starting up a new theme in the fall, all right? Looking for some men. They've been doing this for years. It started with Pastor Craig. He got together with a certain group. They went through discipleship, and then that group started discipling another group, and then, that, and then so on. And now they're at the point where they, they're looking for some new guys. So I challenge you guys, those of you who want to grow in your faith, uh, I think Luke is a part of that group. Um, Doug Africano has been a part of that group, and I know Mark Sattel, um, but uh, Paul Evans, what a fantastic opportunity. But it says they chose people who were known, first of all, to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. Okay? We will turn this responsibility over to them. It's yours. You're going to run with it. How do I know I can trust you? Because you are known to be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. Leaders at every level must be spiritually qualified. The apostles didn't just say, hey, let's just find seven willing bodies and have them serve tables. No, to serve tables, these men had to be of the highest spiritual caliber. Now, look, look who they choose. They choose seven men with Greek names who probably were from Greek backgrounds. The Hebrews didn't, did not demand equal representation or a majority on this board. There may have been seven Hebrews already on the board. We don't know, but they let the Hellenistic men minister to the Hellenistic widows. Okay? A um, couple things about the qualifications. They were, they were plural. They didn't choose one person to do it all. We have a philosophy of ministry here in, at, at our church that we want to do things in teams and in groups. Okay? Uh, every reference to church leaders in, indicates a plurality of, of elders in a single local church, uh, deacons. Uh, they were to be men of good reputation. The Greek word there is witness. It means that, the, that these men had, had to be attested by others to be men of integrity. Reputations take time to build. So it's implied that these seven men were not new believers. In fact, later on, Paul's going to tell Timothy, do not put new believers in leadership. Let them grow first in Christ. Uh, they had to be full of the Spirit. Uh, you're, everybody's full of something. You're either full of self or full of God's Spirit. These men had to be under the Spirit's control. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. You know, D.L. Moody used to say, you know, I, 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 um, I, I'm filled with the Spirit, but I leak. 
<laughs> you know, and it's true because the filling of the Spirit is not the same thing as having the Holy Spirit live inside you. The, the Bible says that the, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. He indwells us, and He'll never leave us. He's sealed us. He'll always be there. In fact, Jesus said, it's better that I go away and that you have the Holy Spirit. It's a crazy thought to think about. Imagine having Jesus with you, around you, doing everything, you know. For three years, these, these apostles had Jesus with them, you know. So, you know, you're having a party and you run out of food. Bam, Jesus is there. Makes more food, <laughs> you know. Uh, you have a headache. Bam, Jesus is there, you know. You can't think of a Bible verse. Jesus is right there, you know. Boom, you know. Uh, your dog gets hit by a car, you know. Bam, Jesus rises, rises him from the dead, you know. Your cat dies and Jesus comes alongside you and build, uh, digs a hole to bury it because he doesn't like cats. <laughs> just wanted to see if you're awake okay all right there you go all you cat lovers out there but I, the point is is that jesus in john 16 said it's better for me to go away because you will have the holy spirit not just beside you but inside you all right that is an amazing thought so all the power and the wisdom of jesus is available to us in us is as now the question is am i going to yield to the spirit he's in me but am i surrendering to him that's what it means to be filled with the holy spirit stephen and these six other guys by the way philip's on there because he's going to be in chapter eight uh, all these guys are going to be people that are going to you know gonna, who are going to spread the gospel they're not just waiting on tables they are and that's a big deal and that's important but they're also going to be people that are going to end up stephen preaches the longest sermon in the book of acts and we're going to get into that, you know, and he and, and it leads to the conversion of Saul. That's quite amazing. All right. And I love it because it's a layperson who does it. It's not one of the apostles. And so, the, again, the point of the book of Acts isn't, oh, you know, get a, get, 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 get a great group of leaders and you'll have a great church, you know, get a great preacher and you'll have a great church. Unfortunately, that's how the American church tends to do it. You know, get a great band, get a great, you know, set, get a great preacher and people will come. That's so dysfunctional. It's not. It's not the way that church was meant to be. It's meant to make everybody is full of the Spirit. Because when you're full of the Spirit and you're yielded to the Spirit, you start doing things that God wants you to do. Now, going back to D.L. Moody's quote, I leak means, you know what? As humans and as, and as Christians, we're not always operating in the power of the Spirit. Sometimes I am often operating in the flesh. That's why we need other believers to walk alongside us and encourage us and say, hey, Tony, you know, I don't know if you said that in the right spirit. I don't know if you're doing that. How's your prayer life? How's your time in God's Word? You know, are you being accountable to someone? Okay? These are really important things. They had to be full of the Spirit. They had to be full of wisdom. Wisdom is not knowledge. Okay? One of our takeaways in a moment here, as we run this course down pretty soon, is going to be nothing is more important than the Word of God. And I know some of you, again, you have this mindset that the Word of God is just going to a Bible study and learning more facts. Okay? And it's not just that. Wisdom is the, the ability of, to apply God's Word to your everyday actions. So you could have lots of knowledge but not have wisdom. These men had wisdom, okay? They had to be godly. It says, They presented these men to the apostles. Look at verse 6. Who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the Word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Let me say something real fast about the laying on of hands. It's so important. Uh, we often do that here. Here it signified identification of the apostles with these men and their ministry. The apostles were saying, hey, 
you know, you, 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 you're a leader. I, I identify you as, as a leader. I'm sending you out. In Acts 13.3, it was the same thing. They, they worshiped God and they were fasting and God put on their hearts Saul and Barnabas and, uh, and Paul and Barnabas. And when they went out as missionaries, they prayed with them and they laid hands, okay? Now, there's another type of laying on the hands where you receive a gift. Um, the bestowing of gifts necessary for the task. Uh, in 1 Timothy 4.14 and 2 Timothy 1.6, it talks about this. He tells Timothy, he says, don't neglect the gift that was given to you uh, from the laying on of hands, okay? Now, we don't often normally do that, but the Bible says that when you become a Christian, every, every believer receives some type of spiritual gift. And if you don't know what your spiritual gift, one application of today and next week's sermon will be to, for you guys to jump into finding out what your spiritual gift is and to be able to use it, all right? I mentioned the word deacons earlier. Um, sometimes people think that these seven guys were called deacons. Technically, they weren't. If you've been around church long enough, you know that the elders are like the governing authorities whose primary responsibility is to pray and minister the Word of God and make important decisions uh, on the life of the church, okay, and, and seek God's wisdom. The deacons are people who often serve as trustees or on different boards or oversee ministries, okay? Uh, so the word deacon comes from diakonos, which is this word for service, okay? And it's found twice here. The apostles are functioning something like elders, and these seven are functioning as deacons. But the point is, is that they both need to be equally qualified, okay? Let's, uh, let's start getting a, a rundown. Look at verse 7. The word, uh, Luke gives a summary report, and it's our last verse, indicating the impact of the apostles' decision to appoint these seven leaders. The word of God continued to spread. All right? The same expression is found later in Acts 12 and Acts 19. He's not just describing church growth, but he's rather describing the ever-widening circle in which the gospel is proclaimed. All right? Um, it says in 1910, this went on for two years so that all who lived in the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. The word of God was not restricted by the opposition, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leaders, or the threatening crisis in care of the widows. Is the word of God spreading in our community? It's a good question to ask. Second, the church continued to grow in numbers. The number of disciples increased greatly, it says. And then third, we're told that many of the priests came to faith in Jesus, or rather they became obedient to the faith. Now, why does Luke throw this in here? Well, who is it, whose responsibility was it in the Old Testament to care for the widows? It was the priests. Yeah. Who were the ones who were most antagonistic towards Jesus and towards the early disciples in the first five chapters of Acts? It's the priests. And guess who's coming to Christ? Is it because of Peter's great sermon? No. It's because they saw the love and the care that the Christians, the disciples, showed for those who were in need. And they said, you know what? You know, because they were used to, see, you know, Jesus called them out and said they were people who devoured widows and made a long show for themselves with prayers and they didn't care for them. He always condemned the religious leaders. And so people who were priests... They knew the hypocrisy that was involved in their trade. And yet when they saw the love and the service that was going on here by the leaders and by the church, it moved them to faith. 
That's powerful. That's really powerful. Let me give you some takeaways. Number one, the core of Christian commitment is service. Okay? Stephen is introduced to us as a servant. His job was not glorious. He waited tables for widows. He obviously was a capable leader. He was a gifted theologian and a good preacher. But he didn't say, well, I'm going, to do, I'm going to need something a little bit more in line with my gifts. He said, nope, it's not about me. And if this is how I can serve the body of Christ, I'll gladly do it. All right? That's the first thing. That service, though seemingly insignificant, had a huge effect. Not only did he help preserve church unity, his service led to the conversion of, of Paul and the religious priests. Francis Schaeffer said once this, he said, the love of the church is the church's most effective apologetic. Let me say that again. The love of the church is the most effective apologetic. Jesus said, John 13, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. Our desire at this church is that we would be a characterized by service. Okay? Um, and that, you know, that we would be a people who just serve. And we do it out of love. Aristides was not a Christian, but he was a second century philosopher. And uh, he observed Christians, and he wrote this to, uh, to an emperor, Emperor Hadrian, in A.D. 125, about the rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire. He said, They love one another, and from widows they do not turn away their esteem, and they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. This is an unbeliever talking. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the Spirit and in God. There are found in their other writings things which are hard to utter and difficult for one to narrate, which are, are not only spoken in words, but also wrought out in deeds. In other words, Aristides says, I can't explain it, but I'm sure not going to argue with it. When people of faith take seriously what Jesus says about caring for others, it causes our society to take notice. And that's what the early church was doing. That's what we want to do. You say, Tony, how do I discover where, I, where, where to serve? Three things. Where's your place of skill, place of passion, place of need? Skill means where are you gifted in? What are you gifted in? Some, some people are really gifted at doing certain things, building things, making things, serving others. What's your spiritual gift? What's your passion? What's your passion? Do you have a passion for the lost? We have a couple that is reaching out on, on uh, weekly to, to reach out to the lost, doing a seeker's Bible study. What's your passion? And then what is the, what is the need? You know, I, I don't know if Stephen's passion or gift was waiting on tables, but these seven guys said, hey, there's a need. I'm going to step up. I'm going to fill it. Okay? I hope you'll discover where you could serve. Number two, First takeaway, the core of Christian commitment is service. Number two, nothing is more important than the Word of God and being filled with the Spirit of God. Nothing is more important. Here's my question for you. Have you devoted yourself to the Word? Would you be ready to preach a sermon like Stephen preached? He just got up and preached when he was uh, there. It's not enough for me to prioritize teaching it. You have to prioritize learning it. Okay, The Holy Spirit can bring to your memory uh, things, but only things you've already committed to your memory. He can't fire bullets you haven't stocked in your arsenal. We need to be people who are committed to the Word of God. One of the things that we're doing with our EDGE student ministry right now is we're doing uh, a verse of the week. 
and we're trying to get them to memorize scripture each week and key scriptures. I don't know if you've ever done that, but the power in that is so powerful. When Jesus was being tempted, you remember how he combated Satan? He quoted God's word. Do you know God's word well enough to, to combat the lies of Satan? The third thing is this. God does his greatest work through ordinary people. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. I mentioned that Stephen preached the longest sermon in the book of Acts without, with the most powerful effect, the conversion of Saul. Anybody ever heard of Charles Spurgeon? Famous preacher. You know how he came to Christ? It was a snowy day. No, it was one of those days where nobody came to church. The pastor didn't make it to church. So they got up and they said, Hey, you, why don't you preach? And the layman got up and he preached a sermon. And, and Charles Spurgeon was there and gave his life to Christ and became a, a well-known preacher that led thousands of people to Jesus Christ. But that layman just got up by the power of the Holy Spirit and was ready to, to preach God's Word. God does not use always the gifted and the talented. He often uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Let's pray. God, I thank you for each person here today. I thank you for your love for them. I thank you, Father, as Nancy earlier read, but God, who is rich in mercy. Father, the gospel is all about second chances. The gospel is all about us being served by the creator of the universe. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to die for us. Lord, I pray, Father, that if there's anyone here who has never accepted that gift, that serve that you did for us, you died on the cross for our sins and rose again. You washed the disciples' feet. Father, I pray that it would start there. But I ask God that we would not be a church that is full of ourselves, that looks at personalities and people, that judges motives, that doesn't go to the source. But I pray that we would be spirit-filled, full of faith in your word. God, I pray that we'd be people committed to prayer. And I ask in Jesus' name that people who are hearing my voice this morning that are here, that they would step up and not be afraid to lead. Father, I pray, God, that they would be known and that they would be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom and full of faith and take steps of faith, God, to serve where there's a need, to lead where there's a need, God. Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you would call uh, people in this church to step up this fall and be involved in your service. And help us as leaders, Lord, to empower them, to come alongside them, to encourage them, to pray for them. Father, I pray that we would hear your calling today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.